So we have this summer been in the midst of a series. We've been taking a look at um, a series entitled Pleading the Fifth. And as we've walked through the first three chapters so far of the book of Romans, the scene has been set for us, and it's the scene of a courtroom. And in reality, the the courtroom and the scene that is taking place is basically Paul is making an argument saying that all humanity is on trial. Each person that has lived, every person that is living, and every person that will live is on trial. And basically this trial is is going to find out who is righteous and who is condemned. That is going to be the outcome of this trial. So we need to understand that you and I as individual people that live now, we're on trial. Our lives are on trial. And when we come to the point where we stand before the judge, our life will either be determined as righteous or as condemned. And we saw as we walked through the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, we saw that the righteous will live by faith. So those that hope to stand as one that is righteous and not condemned must be someone that lives by faith, which basically is the courtroom that we are in. In the courtroom, we will be tried on our faith. More specifically, the trial or the the object of the trial is going to be what is the object that we have placed our faith in so what is it that we hope or find our assurance or what is it that we find all of our life what is it all founded on and so paul through romans chapter one through three goes through and looks at different objects that people place their faith in and he basically says that none of those objects provide a person to have right standing before god so he begins by talking about if the object of our faith is ourselves. This is Romans chapter 1. If, if there's someone in the world that looks and is looking for righteousness or being made right before God based on themselves, then that's not sufficient enough to make someone right before God. If we go back to Romans chapter 1, we see that when we place faith in ourselves, it leads us to fulfilling our own desires. If we ourselves are God, or if we elevate ourselves to the position of God, then we seek our own needs, we seek our own desires, and what that does, it leads us down to a path where we use and abuse other people just for the sake of ourselves. Paul then goes on to say, so that's not an object of faith that leads us in a right standing before God. The next object of faith is comparing ourselves to others. If we look back and we, we begin to inventory our own life and we look at how we are different than our neighbor or how we are better than our neighbor, then that's not going to lead us in right standing before God. For we can look at other people, we can always look at other people and we can say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. And in some ways, we're trying to find justification in our lives based on us being better than someone that's, that's worse. And so Paul goes on to say that that's not good either. Even by the simple fact of judging or making a judgment call like that, you're condemning yourself. But then Paul goes on to say, well, if, if our object of faith cannot be found in ourselves, object of faith cannot be found in comparing ourselves to others, if their object of faith, he goes on to say, cannot be found in religion. If our hope for right standing before God is found in our religion or adhering to a certain set of rules, Paul is saying that that's not where we're going to find righteousness either. For in following a religion, what we try to do is we say, because I do this or because I do that, I am okay. And Paul came to the conclusion last week in Romans chapter 3 
that righteousness or right standing before God can never come from us. Our right standing from God can never begin in us or come from us, that it must come from outside of us, for we ourselves, in our very nature, are people that that disassociate ourselves with God, that deny God, that don't want to worship God. Instead, we focus in on ourselves. And the Bible calls that transition from God to ourselves as sin. And all sin leads to condemnation. But last week, we saw that God has provided righteousness, that righteousness has come from God through Christ. That this person, Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, came to earth and lived a perfect life. In every way he lived in great accordance to the laws that God had set out. In every way he lived in complete obedience to God the Father. So he worshipped him. He lived for him. He lived by him. He never did anything in and of himself, but he did everything for God. And God saw fit to allow Jesus Christ to go to a cross. And Jesus went to a a cross, and what he did on that cross is he absorbed the wrath of God, the wrath that was due those that were condemned. It was laid on Christ. And so he absorbed the wrath of God, took our penalty, and took all the sin. And he died. And then he died and was dead, And God saw fit to to accept his sacrifice as something that was meaningful and effective. And so Christ raised from the dead and now stands at the right hand of the Father and is there ruling and reigning with God. And so Christ, as we saw last week, has become the object of our faith. If we hope to be in right standing with God, the only thing that can save us, the only thing that can make us right, is if we place our faith in Jesus Christ. So today, as we come to Romans chapter 4, I want us to see two things. Two things very simply. That faith in Christ, not works, makes us right before God. Let me say that again. First thing we're going to see is that faith in Christ, not works for Christ, is what makes us right before God. The second thing that we're going to see is that now everyone has the opportunity to experience this right standing before God. So we're going to see those two things and we're going to unpack them in just a minute. But before we do, let's go to Romans chapter 4 and see what the word of God has to say on this issue. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks the blessedness of the man whom God does credit righteous and apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, but under what circumstances what is it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. 
And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe and have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but are also walking the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not only through the law, Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir to the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by the law are heirs, faith has no value, and its promise is worthless. Because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this word. Father, we thank you today that you, uh, through your word, will show us the way to be righteous before you. Father, we know that in our own self and our own desires, we desire to earn our way back to you. We We desire to earn favor with you through the things that we do. But we must realize today that it is by faith and through faith. And so, Father, I pray today that your word would speak into our lives. Father, we know that there are many people here today that come to this place in various places on their faith journey. Father, I pray today that your word would help us all take that next step. For some, it may be the step unto salvation. For others, it may be just the steps of further sanctification. So, Father, today, may your word speak and help us to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever played a game where you're learning the game for the first time and it seems as though the person that's teaching you the game changes the rules midstream? Has that ever happened to you? Like, is it fun for that to happen or does that create some animosity or anxiety or anger inside of you and someone changes the game? Well, I've had an experience like this. This past week, uh, Leah and I sat down to play a game of Yahtzee. Now, this must have been a new kind of Yahtzee. It wasn't the Yahtzee that I'm used to playing, for I know the rules to Yahtzee, but this must have been a special series called the Leah version of Yahtzee. For Leah, as she's playing the game, we start playing, and I start rolling the dice, and she starts rolling the dice, and we get our scorecards out, and I roll the dice, and and I start... I think I had a, a, a straight for the first time, and, she's, and I start to write my score down, and she's like, no, 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 Daddy, that's not it, that's not it. I show you, I show you. And so she takes the dice and takes the cup, and she shakes it for about 45 seconds, which I think is probably what you're supposed to do. Shake it for 45 seconds and make this really loud noise. And then she throws it down on the ground, and she opens them all up, and she says, Yahtzee! <laughs> and I look at all of the dice that are there before her, and it's not a Yahtzee. She's got a one, a four, a five, and some other numbers. And I say, no, Leah, you don't have a Yahtzee. She says, no, Daddy, I have Yahtzee. Give me coin. 
And so I have to give her the little yellow coin that she has. And I'm like, okay, I don't understand, but that's not how you play Yahtzee. She goes, no, Daddy, that's how you play Yahtzee. And so I take the dice back again, and I roll my dice, and I'm working on a, a pair of threes. So I have a pair of threes, and I'm trying to get more threes. And she goes, no, Daddy, no, Daddy, that's not how you do it. So she takes the dice back, and she rolls her dice. 45 seconds, she's shaking it, rolls the dice again. She says, Yahtzee. And I look at her dice, and it's not a Yahtzee. And so I'm becoming frustrated. I'm like, Leah, that's not how you play Yahtzee. She's like, yes, it is, Daddy. And finally, she gets frustrated enough, and she just walks away. And she says, I'm not playing with you, Daddy. <laughs> so not only is it frustrating to have the rules change, but if you know the game and someone else doesn't want to play your way, it becomes frustrating, right? Well, in some ways, that's a similar scenario to what Paul is going to address in chapter 4. In chapter 4, as he begins, he's talking to the Jewish hearers of this passage. And the Jewish hearers, as, as Paul is proclaiming that righteousness is found through faith, not through works, the Jewish hearers must have been hearing this and thinking to themselves, Paul, you're changing the rules. Paul, you're changing the rules, for we were taught and we were brought up to believe that our right standing before God is found in how we keep the law or how much we keep the law. That we can be right before God if we keep the Ten Commandments. If we don't kill, if we don't steal, then we are right before God. But what Paul is going on to say, he's going to say two things that, that they felt that the rules were being changed about. First, they felt that the rules were being changed at how someone is made right in the sight of God. See, they were brought up and taught that being made right in the sight of God was found in how they kept the law. But Paul is going on to say, and we're going to see this in just a moment, that Paul is going on to say that your interpretation of the truth has been changed over time that that's not the way God intended it when he laid it down in the Old Testament, that there is no difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Faith was found, or righteousness was found in the Old Testament, much the same way it is found in the New Testament, that it never has been about works, that it has always been about faith. And we see here that Paul begins by giving them an example of this misinterpretation as he goes back to Abraham. So he's going back, and he's going to re-put together He's already dismantled their beliefs, so he's going to begin to put back together in places that they understand and in places that they can begin. And so he goes back to Abraham. And he says, let's give Abraham as a test case, one of our forefathers, so the Jews could be able to look back to him and they could say to themselves, if there was anyone that was righteous before God, it had to have been Abraham. For Abraham was our father. He is the father of our nation. He is the father of our people. Now, what Paul is going to say, it's not what Abraham did that made him righteous, but it was in whom he placed his faith. We see here that it says here that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. So what basically Paul is going on to say is that there's not a scale of faith. There's not some cosmic scale out there where God is looking at our good versus our bad. He's not out there saying, if you do more good in your life, more than you do bad in your life, then somehow you'll be just before God. What God God has said and what God will continue to say is if you do any bad in your life, if you do any bad, you are condemned before God for eternity. doesn't matter. There's not this cosmic scale where a good deed cancels, cancels out a bad deed. That's not the checks and balances that 
God requires. What God requires, if we're looking at a scale, is it says either you have faith in God or you have faith in something else. That's the test. If you have faith in God, then you will be found righteous. If you have faith in anything else other than God, you will be found condemned. That's the scale. Not based on what we do, but based on what we believe. And he goes on to show this. He proves this for what Paul is doing here is he's quoting uh, Genesis chapter 15. He's going back to Genesis chapter chapter 15, to remind his Jewish readers of how this all comes about. And I want to walk with you through the Old Testament in Genesis just for a moment to give you this pattern of righteousness. How does someone become right? Well, we see it always begins with a promise. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord comes to Abraham and he gives him this promise. He says, I will make you into a great nation. That's the promise that the Lord, the word of the Lord comes to Abraham himself. I will make you a great nation nation. Then from Genesis chapter 12 into Genesis chapter 15, a lot of life happens. Abraham begins on this journey. He goes from Ur and he makes his way into Canaan and he has some opportunities to discourse and to live life with Lot. He goes in and saves Lot. He goes to Egypt and he he lies to the Pharaoh about his wife being a sister and all of this stuff's taking place. But then we see Genesis chapter 15 come on the scene. And Abraham reminds himself over and over and over again of the promise that the Lord gave him. I will make you into a great nation. I will make you great. And then in Genesis chapter 15, verse 12, we see the Lord comes back to Abraham. And Abraham and the Lord have this conversation. Verse 2, he says, But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, What can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham had said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So there's been this space of time in which God gives a promise. Abraham begins living his life and he begins looking around his life. He sees that he's aged. He sees that he has no children. So how can he be made into a great nation if he has no children? And so he's trying, he goes through this this test of himself. He begins to look inwardly to see if there's some way he can make this happen, make this promise happen. And what he comes to find out is there's no way he can do it. There's no way he can make himself into a great nation. No matter how many times he lays with his wife, she is not having children. And so there's nothing he can do about it. And so he looks back to God and he says, Oh, sovereign God, I know that you're in charge of all things, but you have not done this. And so what am I to do? But then the Lord does something great. If we look in verse 4 of chapter 15, the Lord reiterates his promise again. He says, I promise you I will make you a great into a great nation. Then he gives the promise again. He says, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son is coming from your own body will be your heir. Then, not only did he give him a word, but then he takes him outside and he looks up into heavens and counts the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. So the Lord again comes to Abraham and says, I made a promise. You've tried 
It hasn't worked to do it in your own strength. Trust me once again. He takes him outside and says, I promise you that your children will be as many as the stars. And then we see something amazing happen. Verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord. What happened is Abraham in that moment, in this time of belief, as he's standing before the Lord, he knew that he could not do it in himself. He knew that if this promise was to come about, that there's no strength or power that he had in himself to make this happen because he had tried. And so he says, I believed in the Lord. So he placed his faith, he placed his confidence in God and literally said, I cannot, but you can. And then we see this gift given and it was credited to him as righteousness that is what paul is saying to the roman church abraham was not found righteous because of what he did abraham was found righteous because he believed in god and paul goes on in in chapter four here he begins pushing up and against works versus faith he differentiates the two he goes on to say when we work we receive a wage. There is something that is due us. When we do the time, we receive the reward. And so he says a wage is earned based on our effort and the person that has to, there is an obligation to pay for what work that we do. But then he goes on and he talks about faith. And he begins to talk about faith is really the reality of coming to the end of ourselves. It's coming to the end of our work. And he goes on and we see here, and I want us to see through this passage, when we see the words, as we walk through this passage, we'll see certain words. We'll see the word, uh, we'll see the word believe. We'll see the word trust. And we'll see the word faith. And I want us to understand that the Greek word for each of those words is the same word. It's the same word, pistuo, which really means to have faith. That's the, the, the verb of it. And so we see that the, the Bible translators translate the same word as believe, trust, and faith. And they, dem- they, they um, differentiate and demonstrate it differently to show the different contra- complementary aspects of the word. For faith, true faith, is a surrendering of the mind. It's a surrendering of the affections. It's a surrendering of the will to the object in which you're placing your faith. Let me remind you of that again. Faith is a surrendering of your mind, your thoughts. It's a surrendering of your affection, your heart, and it's a surrendering of your will to the object in which you're placing faith. And we see that's what Abraham did. He gave up his, the reality of, of life as he realized, hey, I'm a person. It doesn't make sense for a person that's of my age and for a wife that is my age to have children. That is illogical. And so he gave that up. He gave up his affections too, saying, Lord, I want to have a child of my own, but I give that up to you. And he, then he also bent his will, saying, not in my timing, but in your timing. In faith, this giving up of our mind, this giving up of our affections, and this bending of our will opens up the pathway for righteousness. Faith always precedes work. It's not the other way around. 
we receive this gift of righteousness, which comes from God by grace. So he gives us this, this pattern as he walks through the life of Abraham real quickly. But then Paul goes on to give us another example. He gives us another uh, pattern of righteousness through the life of David. For we also know that David was not found righteous because of what he did. David never found righteousness in what he did. And these words we see in, in uh, Romans chapter 4, 7 and 8 literally come from Psalm 32. And Psalm 32 is Paul's response to, or, or Psalm 32 is David's response to his sin that had been made known to him. For we know that David, when he was alone in the palace, one night looked out and saw Bathsheba bathing, and he desired her. And so Bathsheba was married to another man, Uriah, and so she, he calls to her and says, come be with me. And so she, being uh, obedient a uh, follower comes in and, and she lays with him and she becomes pregnant because of that. And David, because of his fear of all of this and understanding what he has done, begins to try to cover it up. And so he has Uriah come home and, and seeks to hope that Uriah will lay with his wife and so that they, he can cover up his, his sin and so that they will say that he became pregnant through her and we see Uriah doesn't, so what David does, he further tries to cover it up, and he sends Uriah to the front lines of the battlefield so that he will surely die. And so David has done some atrocious sin. We can see the pattern of sin in his life has just amounted this great cause against him. And the Jewish believers, as they were reminded of David, they say, well, David, David was the man after God's own heart. And if David was on this scale of, of good versus evil, we know that he's done evil. But, but surely David has done more good than he's done evil. Think about all the good things that David did. So if we're counting life on this scale, surely David is righteous. And Paul goes on to say, no, he's not righteous. Again, it's not based on what we do, but it's in whom we have faith. And we can see that what David had come to is on a certain day, the prophet of, of, of the Lord, Nathan, comes to David and says, David, you, what have you done? And when David realizes what has happened and Nathan Um, Nathan confronts David with his sin in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David doesn't begin to go give a defense. David doesn't say, well, I've done this, or it was Uriah's fault, or it was Bathsheba's fault. She shouldn't have been bathing up on the roof. He doesn't go through this defense. Instead, his response we see in verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And in that statement shows his utterance of faith he doesn't go back to this scale and say i've done more good than i've done bad he realizes that apart from god he is hopeless and helpless to save himself and he realizes that he has sinned against the lord and this is what nathan replies the lord has taken away your sin you are not going to die so we see that righteousness is given. And that's why it's so sweet for David to write here in verse 6 and 7. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord never counts against, against him. Have you felt the weight of your sin? 
Have you, as you've walked through life, come to the place where you realize that you are unable and incapable of saving yourself, that you have offended a holy and righteous God? And then apart from his intervening in your life, you stand before him condemned. How sweet it is to be in that place than to call out to the Lord for salvation in faith and then to receive forgiveness. For those of you that are believers, do you remember the sweetness you felt the moment of your salvation? Do you remember how sweet it was to know and to feel for the very first time that your sins are forgiven? The things that you have done in the past are wiped away? That is a sweet place to be. Let me give you one more example of, of faith and works and how it, how it works itself out. Now, what if the gospel was according to R. Kelly? You guys know who R. Kelly is? What if the gospel were according to R. Kelly? And R. Kelly were to be here this morning presenting the gospel to you, and this is his gospel. He says, you can fly. You can touch the sky. If you think about it every night and day, if you spread your wings and fly away, you can fly. Okay? Now, if that were the gospel, that's the promise given, then our faith would be, being placing our faith in this promise that you can fly. How many of you here today believe you can fly? Why not? Well, let's say we do. Let's say that we, we believe that that's the gospel. We believe that we can fly. And so what do we begin to do? Well, if we think that we can fly and we believe there's a promise that we can fly, then the reality of our life would begin to try to live out that promise by flying in and of ourselves. So what would we do? Well, if I believe that I could fly, and I believe that was a promise that came from God, even though it's a promise that comes from R. Kelly, and we believe that we can fly, then we're going to go test that out. And so if I believe I can fly, then I'm going to go home today, and I'm going to go up on the roof of my house, and I'm going to believe that I can fly, and I'm going to jump off. And so let's say I jump off, and what's going to happen to me? I'm going to come crashing down, right, and break a leg. So the reality is, I'm going to try to continue to fly. And so I go back to the song, and I say, well, I couldn't fly by just jumping. Wait a minute, that song said something about wings, right? So what if I go and manufacture myself some great wings that are made of like chicken feathers and bird feathers and all these other things, and I, and I attach these wings to my arms, and I go back up to the top of my roof, and I jump again, what's going to happen to me? Even as hard as I flap my wings, I can flap my wings until pigs begin to fly too. And what's going to happen to me is the reality is as soon as I jump off the top of my roof, I'm going to come smashing down to the ground. But it's not until this promise of I can fly that I come to the end of myself that I quit thinking about it, I keep thinking about how I can manufacture it, I think about how changing my affections towards it, or I begin to bend my will, and I begin to understand, okay, I can't fly by myself. But what if I place my faith in something else? What if I place my faith in something that is more powerful than myself? Something that actually has the ability to fly. So what then if I position myself so that I go and I sit down in an airplane? And in that airplane, I have just shown my faith in the airplane. And what's that airplane going to do? 
it's going to begin to taxi. It's beginning to take speed. And as it begins to gather speed, what's going to happen? This thing called lift is going to take place. And that thing, that airplane, is going to begin to soar up in the air. And so in reality, I am flying, but I'm not flying in and of myself, but I'm flying in the strength and power of the airplane. And so in that way, R. Kelly's gospel can be true. I believe I can fly. In that moment while I'm in the airplane, I can touch the sky. I can think about it every night and day. I can fly during the day. I can fly during the night. I can spread my wings and I can fly away. I can go anywhere in the world that that plane can take me. Do you see the difference? There's no way in and of ourselves that any of us can ever earn favor with God. But we, like the R. Kelly gospel, must come to the place of trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation. For this is the gospel and it's simple. The promise stated in the gospel is that you can be right before God. It is possible for humanity to be right before God. Our sins can be forgiven. We can be made whole and we can be made right if we place our faith and confidence in the work of Christ. Then it can be credited to us as righteousness. That's simply put. That's simply the gospel. And so Paul goes on and he begins to conclude this passage in in this area. But he goes and he says he's not changing the rules. It's never been about works versus faith. But then he goes on and and handles their second question. For Paul and these believers begin, or these, these Jewish people believe, well then who can be made right? Who can be made right? Is, is this rightness only made for the Jews or is it for the Gentiles? And we look verses 9 through 17. The question is, who's in and who's out? Is it the circumcised or the uncircumcised? Is it the Jew or is it the Gentile? And Paul goes on to say the answer is both. For he goes on to say, when was Abraham credited with righteousness? Was it before his circumcision or was it after his circumcision? For we see in chapter 15 of Genesis, it was before the covenant of circumcision and the, and the mark of circumcision doesn't come until chapter 17 of Genesis. So when Abraham was credited with righteousness, he was a Gentile. And since God never changes, it's also possible for Gentiles to have the promise of the same father, Abraham. That is a glorious blessing for us today. That we don't have to come from the line of the Jews to be saved. We don't have to come from the line of the Jews to find righteousness. That righteousness can be found in Christ. And now this righteousness is made open to everyone. And what's amazing about this is now that righteousness has been made open and has always been made open to everyone, what do we see is that God's promise that that Abraham will be the father of many nations is coming even more true by us coming to faith in Christ. For we are connected to Abraham. We are connected to God through Christ. Righteousness is for everyone. So if you're here today, I want you to believe and want you to know that this righteousness, this right standing before God is offered to everyone. 
We can see throughout the Holy Scriptures, we can see throughout the New Testament, we can see that this offer is made over and over and over again. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. Romans ten thirteen says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the question today as we come to a close is where is your faith? Are you in right standing before God? When you're called to give an account of your life before God, where are you going to go to find your justification? Where are you going to go to say, I am right? Are you going to go to Jesus Christ himself or are you going to go to something else? Are you going to go to the traditions that were passed on from your father and from your mother? Or are you going to go to the person of Jesus Christ? 